Father, thank you, Lord, for the chance we have to come here tonight and be in your presence and to praise you. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone, Father, are worthy for our of our adoration, of our obedience. And but, Father, I ask tonight you'd help us make uh, make church real, make our walk with you real. Because, Father, I know as we come into a room like this and we sit down and we look around and we think. Perhaps look at all the people around here that seem to have their life together. And then we think about our own life and we think, what a mess. You know, the fear I have or the, the lusts I have to contend with or the, the way I have messed up one thing after another in my walk. And certainly these other people around me, they, they must have their act together. But, but then we remember, Father, that you brought Christ into this world because there was no one good enough. And he had to die, Father, because we have all messed up. And then, Father, you knew we could not walk with you in obedience even after that, so you gave us the Spirit. And in the Spirit, as he counsels our heart and he convicts us, Father, he reminds us that, that he's here to help us walk that walk. And we can rely on him to point us in the right direction. And everybody has him because nobody can get there without him. And then you give us each other, Father, and you give us a building and you give us a gathering so that we don't have to do this alone. So that none of us, Father, face those challenges in our life thinking that it's only us. In fact, Father, if there was a person in this room who had their act together, they wouldn't be in this room. This isn't a place for people who have their act together, is it? You called people, Father, who were your enemies, who had sin, whose lives were... We're going in the wrong direction and you brought us to you and gave us righteousness that was not our own and you've given us a spirit so that we can understand better how we are to please you and you've given us the body of Christ so that when we get weak, there's somebody to lift us up. And when we need prayer, there's someone to intercede. And if, if we need counsel or exhortation or perhaps even a little challenge once in a while, there's somebody standing next to us, Father, who will give us those things. And then in a day to come, we can do the same for someone else. Thank you, Father. That's church. That's what... This is all about, and we ask you, Father, to help us not repeat the mistakes of those we're studying about, men like the Pharisees, for whom religion was just a giant show of hypocrisy. We don't want to be that way. So help us, Father, to hear these things properly and to do what you call us to do. We put this before you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go into Matthew 6. That's where we are. If you don't know, open your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 6. We're in the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is explaining how we are to live in righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, where we are in chapter 6, Jesus is giving us four examples of the way religious life can be conducted either hypocritically or genuinely. Hypocritically, you can do things like give to the poor, pray, fast, or accumulate wealth. And in a hypocritical fashion, you can approach those issues in your spiritual life in such a way that you play to the crowd. You concern yourself with how others see you, and you seek their praises, not God. And Jesus said that is a hypocritical way of living out your life as a Christian. And if you choose to go about life that way as a Christian or as any kind of religious person, what you're finding then is that the reward you might have gained from God for those things is lost. And in place of it, you only have the reward you've gained from people. That is, the praises that you sought, that is your reward. 
And Jesus said, on the other hand, if you were to practice those things with a true heart, the way that would look is very different. You would do it quietly, he said. You would do it secretly, so that only your Father in heaven would know about it, and only he can be impressed by it. And in that way, the Father who sees what you do in that way would recognize your obedient heart, your genuine motives, and as such, he would reward you eternally in heaven in a day to come. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then... Each man's praise will come to him from God. So in other words, in the end, Paul says, our praise, our reward, will come from God, not from men. And that praise, Paul says, will be based on the motives of our hearts, not merely on what actions we took, which then precludes hypocrisy. It rules out reward for hypocrisy. Now last week at the end of our teaching on the second of those four examples, on the one on prayer, we studied the model that Jesus gave us, the one we call the Our Father. And you remember last week we learned that in what Jesus said, he said it is hypocritical to take a prayer and just repeat it over and over again and make it mantra. Because here's why it's hypocritical. You're claiming to be conversing with God and yet you've checked your mind out of the process and all you're doing is just chanting. And that's no more conversation with God than it would be if you tried that with your spouse or with a friend. That's hypocritical, he said. What he said instead was, pray in the way I'm going to show you. And in that model, he says, you are to structure your conversation according to these elements, not to just verbatim repeat what I told you. And in the structure that he gave us, he says, you start by addressing your prayer to the Father. You include some part in your prayer life for adoration and praise. You include a part in your prayer life for kingdom-mindedness, thinking of what is to come, thinking of the eternal, not just what's going on here and now. He said, you may also lift up your daily needs to him. That's certainly appropriate. And you would ask for relief from temptation, as the enemy might bring it into your life. But then, near the end of that model, one of the six parts that Jesus told us to give in our prayers was time seeking the Lord's forgiveness for our sins as we forgive others, he said. Now, I didn't cover that part last week. Remember, I just jumped over it and I said we'd get back to it. Well, here we are. We're getting back to it. I jumped over it because it's complicated and because Jesus spends additional time on this same topic himself. Notice at the end of the prayer, look on the page in front of you or the screen, you'll notice right after the prayer ends in verse 13, in verse 14, he picks up again talking about forgiveness. Now, of all the parts he just laid out, for whatever reason, that one seemed to be important enough that Jesus said, "Let let me emphasize that one to you. Now, if Jesus thought that part was important enough to emphasize it after the rest, then we ought to give it another moment of attention too, right? And that's what tonight is about. Tonight we're going to look at this special issue of forgiveness in the context of this prayer, as in the model. And then, time allowing, we are going to add the third example on fasting. Now you think, well, that's a lot to do. Well, yes and no. Certainly the forgiveness issue is the big one for the night. Fasting is important. I don't want to diminish it, but it's a simpler issue and it won't take long relatively long to talk about that. So I think we'll do both tonight without a problem. Let's jump back in. I'm going to start in the middle of the prayer, and I'm doing that in part to break this notion, to break this thinking that we all have that says, if you want to say the Our Father, you've got to start at the beginning and go all the way to the end, right? we've, We've got it so ingrained in us. I'm trying to break that up a little bit. So at the risk of being called a heretic, I'm going to jump into the middle of this in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, And do not lead us into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. All right, verse 12, Jesus said, we are to ask the Lord for forgiveness of our debts. Now, perhaps you've heard this last part phrased something like, forgive us our sins or forgive us our transgressions. Depends on whether you came out of a Protestant or a Catholic background. The actual Greek word in the original text of Matthew is the word for debt. Uh, Nevertheless, those other versions are just as accurate because in Jewish thinking, um, sin and debt were euphemisms for, or, or synonyms for one another. They understood that when you sin, you incur a debt before God. So to call it a sin, to call it a transgression, to call it a debt, it's all the same. And friends, when you have a debt before God, sooner or later, someone's got to pay that debt. Now, you can pay it, and that's an eternal separation from God, or thankfully there's an alternative. Christ will pay it for you. That is to say, his death on the cross is an acceptable payment to the Father on behalf of those who have sinned, should you accept that payment, should you confess Christ. So we have debts, they're paid by Christ, and that raises a very important question, doesn't it? Jesus said we have to ask the Father forgiveness for our sins in our prayer time. Now as you hear that, isn't that a bit confusing? Isn't it triggering in your head this thought that I know that I was forgiven of my sins at the moment I confessed Christ. At the moment I came to faith, I know I've been taught this or I've read this. Somewhere in the Bible it says that I was forgiven at that point. Paul, uh, Peter says this in his uh, first letter, 1 Peter three eighteen. He says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to de- been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. So, The theology of of the Christian faith, the theology of the Bible says this, plainly, that Jesus' death on the cross was a payment, a perfect offering made for our sake to cover our sin debt before God. And that by his perfect life lived on earth, we are credited with righteousness, having obtained that by faith, and that that is all that is required to enter heaven, period. As the writer of Hebrews says in 10.14, By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies for us, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them, he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Right? And then the writer goes one more verse. He says, Now, where there is forgiveness of these these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's paid. It's done. It's finished, as Christ said, right? One last verse. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.12, The Father made Jesus, him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I know I'm saying things that, Hopefully, for the most part, everybody in here already understood. And perhaps if some didn't know these things, hallelujah, that you heard it now. Right? That's the gospel. That's how you get to heaven, to put it simply. But if on the cross Jesus died to pay the debt for our sin and perfected us forever, according to what the writer of Hebrews says, if that means we have complete and eternal forgiveness from the Father, then why in Matthew 6.12 does Jesus say we should go to the Father in our prayer life on a regular basis seeking forgiveness for our sins? It might lead you to wonder, well, 
Did the forgiveness I receive when I believe, was it just not complete? Was it not sufficient? Or was it temporary? Or could I lose it? Could it kind of come and go depending on whether I'm good or bad? And from those sorts of thoughts, we get all kinds of really bad theology. Really wrong theology. Theology that steals the joy out of this message of joy that we have in the gospel, takes the good news and turns it into not so good news. It's not true. So anyone in here that might share those concerns, let me put them to rest right now. The Bible is abundantly clear that by your faith in Jesus Christ, you are set free forever from the penalty of sin. Jesus says this in John eight thirty four: Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is slaves of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Free, that is, of the penalty of sin. His grace is sufficient. His forgiveness is complete. And by the way, if you fear that you are no longer worthy of that grace, in other words, you feel like, well, I was at one point believing and saved, etc., but you don't know what I've done since then, Steve. I've kind of mucked it up. My life isn't exactly a good news story. I don't know that God can still accept me. Well, would you please remember then that mercy and grace were always unmerited? You know, you didn't deserve it the first time either. It didn't matter. That you had sin. In fact, that was the reason why Christ came. You were just as unworthy to receive his mercy the first time as you feel you are now. And by the way, that fact will never change. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you sin before you came to faith. It won't matter how much you sin after you come to faith. I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. I'm saying it has no impact on your salvation. Another way to say it is, you didn't get saved because you did good things. You won't be unsaved because you did bad things. It has nothing to do with what you do. All right, it's not a works-based message. It's only by faith. And another thought that might creep into your mind is, well, yeah, but, but I look around the room, Steve, and there are so many people here that seem to have their life in order, and I feel like I am not where they are. How can I still have what they have if I'm not where they are? Friends, none of us are good enough. I don't care how good someone looks. I'm not good enough. I mean, if, if, if our lives were laid bare in front of each other, oh my goodness, would we just look at each other and go, I had no idea. And you were my friend. I had no idea. Wouldn't that be true? We're all a little afraid somebody might actually do that, aren't we? Yeah. Well, I don't want to shock you, but it's coming. Which is why we all need grace. Which is why we all need Christ for crying out loud. Who doesn't? You know, two Christians arguing over who was more worthy of God's grace is kind of like two passengers sitting in deck chairs on the Titanic arguing over who has the better view. I mean, it doesn't matter because you're both going to need to be rescued before it's over, right? And that's exactly how the gospel works. God rescued you and me by grace while we were still his enemy, and he determined in the eternal realm that he would forgive us even before we understood we needed it. So don't think that you can sin your way out of that. Again, I'm not suggesting sin is okay. What I'm saying, though, is don't get concerned that somehow in your behavior, subsequent to faith, that there's something coming that could interrupt God's plan for you. He already knew that when he saved you. You're not surprising him. It's just he had that already in view as he saved you. That's why it's so important that we preach the gospel properly and the impact, the meaning, the, the eternal ramifications of it so that no one ever gets deceived into thinking that, oh, well, all's lost anyway. I might as well just go back to my old life. No, you've been saved. You're accountable to Christ. There's a reward judgment coming. You don't want to blow that. And don't let the enemy convince you that you just run off after sin because, after all, you're too bad for God. He's turned his back on you. That's one of the enemy's favorite ploys, by the way. He knows he's lost you in the eternal because you're saved. But if he can deceive you in the meantime, he can 
diminish your witness and your reward. Don't let him do it. Paul says it powerfully this way in Romans. Romans 8.38 For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any created thing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think you can say it any more plainly than that. All right, so now we have been utterly washed clean by the blood of Christ. We are eternally forgiven for our debt. So why do we need to seek forgiveness from God the Father in our prayer? Well, first, to understand that, you have to understand there are two types of forgiveness in the Bible. Not one, but two. First, there is the forgiveness for sins that is heavenly and eternal. I want to repeat that because these will become important distinguishing qualities that will explain the matter better. Heavenly and eternal. Heavenly and eternal forgiveness. That is the forgiveness you received when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment, the Bible says you were born again. By the Spirit of God, you were made an adopted child of God. And the Spirit that God rebirthed in you is in the image of Christ. So the Bible says that Spirit is like Christ's Spirit in that it is no longer under condemnation because it is perfect. Did you know that? Paul says in Romans 6 that the Spirit you received when you were born again by faith is perfect. It never sins. Never. And if you want proof of that, remember this. When your body dies, where does your spirit go? into the presence of God. What can go into the presence of God? Only things that are perfect. The problem isn't your spirit. The problem is your spirit's shackled to this dying, sinful, miserable thing called a body. Now that body is standing between you and perfection, but only for a while. When you shed that dying body, whether that's because you die or because the rapture comes and takes it away from us, whichever comes first, all that will remain of you, at least at that one moment, will be your perfect spirit, made so by Christ, welcomed into the presence of the Lord. That's why Jesus can assure us that he loses none the Father gives him, because once you've been born again, you've been made perfect, nothing can change perfection. Jesus says this in John six thirty eight: I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise up on the last day. Do you hear that? Anyone who comes to Christ, that is, is given to Christ, is raised up on the last day. That's a definite, clear statement of eternal security in Scripture among many. John goes on, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Period. And he says, I will raise him up on the last day. All right, so that's one kind of forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that we received... When we believed is this promise of eternal life. It's heavenly and it's eternal. It's eternal because it cannot be taken away from us. It is heavenly because we are assured that we will be received into God's presence in heaven when our body is gone. Eternal, heavenly forgiveness, and it comes by faith alone. And it is permanent. That's the forgiveness we all have. That is not the forgiveness that the Father is asking us to seek in prayer, for that is an unnecessary request. We already have it. That's why we're able to come to Him in prayer. Remember, the Bible says He does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. He does not receive those who come to Him without coming through Christ. So it's a redundant thing to ask for it. But the Bible talks about a second kind of forgiveness, one that is temporal and earthly. So we had eternal and heavenly. Now we have temporal and earthly. And even though you have a new spirit, as I said, you still got that body. And as much as you may like your body, some of us like our bodies better than others, I get it. Some of us probably deserve to like them a little more than others. But 
The truth is, you should not really like your body. And here's why. Because, spiritually speaking, it is your enemy. It is a sincere and lifelong enemy of you and of God. It wants nothing your spirit wants. It certainly doesn't want to please God. And at every opportunity, it's trying to lead you back into sin. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 7. So Romans 6 is the consequences of coming to faith for our spirit, made perfect. And Romans 7 is the consequences of coming to faith for our body. And that is war. War. Now our body and our flesh are on opposite sides, and there's a battle there. And is there any Christian in here that doesn't know what I'm talking about? Okay, we all know what that feels like, right? To feel the constant pull back into our disobedient thoughts and actions. Our spirit wants us to go the right way, but that other part of us says no. That's the war. And in that war, there are going to be days you have great victories. Hallelujah for them. And then there's going to be days when you have setbacks. And you're going to suffer some losses. Your goal, my goal as Christians, should be to mature in our walk in a daily way so that over time our victories become sustained and more triumphant and those setbacks become infrequent and less severe. That's our goal. All right. So sin is an inevitable reality in the life of every believer, at least until we leave this body. But that does not mean, friends, that just because we've been freed from the penalty of sin in the eternal... Remember, we have eternal, heavenly forgiveness. Just because that's true, that does not mean there are not consequences for sin. You follow me? There are earthly, temporal, meaning in our time, in the time of life, there are earthly, temporal consequences for sin. And you know this, and you didn't need me to tell you this. Sin damages your relationships with other people. It causes hurt. In yourself or in others. It causes anger. It causes jealousy. It causes fear. It causes mistrust. It causes resentment. It'll drive a wedge between you and someone else. In your relationship with God, sin pulls you away from an abiding walk with Christ. It distracts you from things He wants you to do. And if you leave that desire to sin unchecked in your earthly life, that unrepentant sin may also provoke the Lord to bring you discipline. To bring a discipline against you. The Bible says that God brings discipline against his children when necessary. So in the earthly temporal consequences of sin, you have these two sides. You have the natural consequences that sin just produces because of how it runs through the world. And then you have the kind God adds on top of that when he chooses. The discipline of the Lord to the believer. He only disciplines his children. He doesn't discipline the world. But that's a special form of love in which the Father says, I love you too much to let you live in sin without consequences. And he brings some discipline, just like a good parent does with a child. That is the result of a believer living in a disobedient way against the commands of Scripture. Now, when we enter the kingdom in our glorified bodies, after we have left this world and we have died, we've been resurrected, we are now with Christ in our permanent, glorified, sinless state. Friends, you will no longer suffer any of the consequences of your earthly decisions. So that's why we can say the second type of forgiveness that we need is temporal and earthly. It only applies while we're here now, and it's only a temporary issue because once we get to the kingdom, all of that is gone anyway. But again, just because the consequences of our sin are limited to here and now, do not assume they are not worthy of your concern. That would be a mistake. 
Because when you sin, the Bible says you break fellowship with God, which means you set aside the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And if you do not listen to the Spirit, who are you listening to by definition? Who's left? The flesh. That is, all that's left in guiding you is what your flesh wants. And that is a very foolish trade-off. And and I could tell you this from many examples in my own life. I'm not going to bore you with all of those things. I don't think you really want to know about all my bad things in, in the past. But I will give you an analogy. Listening to your flesh... And turning aside from the counsel of the Spirit, which is sin, is like ignoring the counsel of your loving parents so that you could heed the advice of your local drug dealer instead. What kind of lifestyle, what kind of outcome do you think that's going to produce? Some people in here can tell you from personal experience what that does. And when you sin, you're turning away from good counsel to bad counsel. It's a recipe for disaster, and it'll bring into into action a whole sequence of events that could bring you to ruin. There are more than a few Christians that have been brought to ruin. And if I'm making anybody uncomfortable at this point, don't worry, there is a good news story coming. But I want to add one last thought. If you've ever wondered when you looked at a Christian whose life has just gone off the rails and you thought they just couldn't have been Christian, then you don't understand the power of sin in the life of a believer. Let me just say that. You're a little naive, friends, whoever might think that. Yes, Christians can go so far off the rails in their own walk that they don't look anything like a Christian anymore for a time. What's in here, what's been saved, what's been made perfect hasn't changed. It just goes to show how far we can go from listening to that side of our nature and then listening to the other side instead. So don't be deceived at how far we can travel in that direction if we're determined, if our stubbornness takes us down that road. You know, it's not hard today to find believers in court, in prison, in bankruptcy, in emergency rooms, out of work, out of friends, out of options, suffering in a variety of ways. Why? Because they decided to persist in sin, or in other cases, because others in their life sinned, and they're suffering under that person's sin. But it's all sin. And as I said, there's also the issue of being disciplined. Let me just add one thought from Hebrews, and then we're going to get to the good news. Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. Hear what he just said. It is knowing that discipline could come against you that you endure in obedience. You hear it that way? He says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This was written back in a day and an age when parents disciplined their children. He says, but if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then he goes on to say, our earthly fathers disciplined us and did it for our own good. Well, then certainly you should expect that the Father in heaven would discipline us for our own good. And then he adds, you know, all discipline seems to be without joy in the moment. But in time, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the point in the long run is to train you up. And that's the key to understanding God's purpose in discipline. It's not punishment. It's training. It's not trying to make you feel bad. It's trying to promote or motivate you to do the right thing. That's what discipline's all about. So those are the two things that can come upon a believer who persists in misbehavior of one kind or another. Now, our Father can do those things. He can discipline us. He can allow natural consequences to have their effect in our life. But friends, God's grace and mercy is not limited to the cross in the moment of faith. His grace for you didn't stop just the moment you became a believer. It's ever-present. It isn't limited to just the eternal heavenly forgiveness that we talked about. 
He has just as much interest in extending grace and mercy to us for those earthly, temporal needs of forgiveness too. The question is, are you seeking that? The Bible says the Lord is going to grant us forgiveness from earthly, temporal sin, the consequences of that sin, if we would ask Him. John says in 1 John 1, nine, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know that verse is often quoted in the context of a person coming to faith. That is, if you confess Christ, you're forgiven. Well, that's a true statement theologically, but that's not what John's talking about. He's writing to the church. Dear little children, if we do these things, this is what will happen. How would he be saying that about salvitic forgiveness if he's writing to believers? Now, that's not his point. He's referring to a believer confessing sin to the Lord in prayer, presumably, so that in that confession we can receive relief from the earthly temporal consequences of our sin. This is powerful stuff, friends. This this might just set you free from some struggle in your life, not necessarily just from the sin but from some of the ramifications that your sin has produced, too, because God has the power to do that. That's the type of forgiveness Jesus is describing in his model of prayer, that during prayer you should confess offenses of whatever kind that you know are still in your life, and as you confess that, the Father's forgiveness will come so that you may not suffer the consequences here and now. We know that by the blood of Christ we're not going to suffer them eternally, But now you're learning that by the love of Christ, the Father is also willing to forgive you the earthly consequences if you would ask Him. Do you feel a little freedom creeping into your thinking right now? A little relief? That little weight on your shoulder coming off? Did you know that your Father in Heaven is is just as willing to offer you that forgiveness as He was the other? If you were raised in one of those kind of strict Puritan-style households where every bad act came with a, a requisite punishment then you may have grown up with this thinking that says, well, there's no way he's just going to let me get scot-free because I made that mistake. I know I'm going to pay for that one. And man, maybe not in eternal terms. I know Christ did that, but I still got to pay my dues now. If that's how you think, friends, soak in the grace of God on this point. As you seek forgiveness, John says the Father is both faithful and just to forgive us. He's faithful in forgiving us because he's patient and kind with his children. It's just like the parable of the prodigal son. Think about that for a moment. The father delights in welcoming back the wayward child. He was a child when he left. He was a child when he was in the mud. And he was a child on the way back. And the father knew that. He just waited for him to come back. And did he put him through a test? Did he say, get over my knee and let me spank you a few times? But No, he embraced him. He waited patiently and he ran to meet the son as he returned. Spiritually speaking, according to what John just wrote, When you enter into prayer and you say to the Father, forgive me, Father, for what I just said to that person yesterday or for what I've been doing lately to my spouse, spiritually speaking, he runs back to greet you in that moment of repentance. That's good stuff. Don't worry about whether he will do that. The Bible says he is faithful to do that. And moreover, he's just when he does that. You know, that part of you that thinks, yeah, something's unfair about this. Shouldn't I pay my dues? (laughs) You don't understand grace. If you think that way. By the blood of Christ, your sin debt was nailed to that cross. Including the sin you're going to do tomorrow. Again, that's not licensed to sin. But it does help us appreciate what the Father's done for us. He is just in overlooking our sin and removing the consequences when we seek that. Because those consequences ultimately fell on Christ. 
He doesn't have to have you pay it too. So here's the key. If you're truly repentant, remember the, the issue in this chapter is hypocrisy, right? If you're truly repentant, and he knows your heart, why would he bring consequences at that point? What would be the benefit? Once you have come through the learning and you've repented and you know what you did is wrong and you no longer have the desire to repeat it, why at that point does God need to bring discipline? Why at that point does it benefit him to see the consequences continue? Which means he may withhold his discipline and he may grant you some limited or, in, or maybe remove altogether the natural consequences. Now don't hear me as promising something I can't promise. I'm not promising that every bad thing will just suddenly turn itself upside down. I mean, there's men and women in prison who made mistakes and they're still in prison even after they ask for forgiveness. There are some consequences that will continue and in God's economy, he'll allow them to. But on other times, maybe they'll get clemency. You know, you don't know what God's prepared to do. The Bible never guarantees anything in this regard as far as the specific things he's willing to do. But I do believe this, and I've seen it in my own life enough to know it's real. I think the Lord delights to surprise you with his kindness in how he can orchestrate events to lessen the consequences. I mean, how many people in here could probably tell me a story of some time that they made a mistake and they were sure they knew where it was going to lead? But they've repented and they confessed and somehow, without them even imagining the possibility, God took care of it for them. And what they thought was going to be the end of something for them just turned out wonderfully. I've had those experiences where not only did he remove the consequences, he blessed me in return. It's sort of like Abraham and Sarah when they went down to Egypt. That God took a terrible thing and actually blessed them with it, right? Not because they deserved it, but because that's what grace looks like. There's another side to this second type of forgiveness, one that you have to understand if you're going to gain the benefit of it. And Jesus told us about it here in the prayer. He said, God's willingness to forgive us of our sin is connected to our willingness to forgive those who've acted against us. Did you catch that? Now remember, that statement in and of itself proves that we're not talking about salvitic forgiveness, right? We know that that precludes the possibility that Jesus is talking about the kind of forgiveness that gets us into heaven. Because if your opportunity to enter heaven was dependent on you forgiving others, that's a works-based gospel, isn't it? Now you have to do a work to get the salvation you want. And that's not what the Bible teaches, so we know that's not what he's talking about. That in and of itself rules out the possibility that we're talking about eternal forgiveness. Notice verse 12, Jesus says, we should pray that God forgive us as we forgive others. And that connecting word as could have been translated differently. It could have been translated to the degree. Forgive us to the degree we forgive others. Well, there's a scary thought now, isn't it? The Father's willingness to grant you mercy against the consequences of earthly sin, earthly consequences, that willingness will depend on your willingness to do the same for someone else. Because we've all got someone who's offended us. We've all got someone who's hurt us. We've all got someone that in the back of our minds we think about once in a while, and whenever we do, our blood gets a little hot. If that's how you are, Concerning that person, watch out, because if you go down in prayer to your Lord saying, forgive me for how I have done this to that other person and I want relief from those consequences, and in the back of your mind you're still holding something against someone else, you know we have a word for that. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy again. You see, the point is, why would you expect him to do for you what you're not willing to do for someone else? I mean, it only stands to reason, right? Again, earthly, temporal issues, not eternal issues. Jesus explains it this way in Luke's Gospel. I like the way he says it in Luke. By the way, I want you, as I read this passage, I want you to notice how this passage has often been misused. Because now you know the correct 
context. It's in the context of forgiving and judging. Listen to this. He says in Luke 6.37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. See that again? Then he says this, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, how many of you have been lied to and told that that spoke about money? Now, don't raise your hands. That's embarrassing. I pick my words in that statement very carefully. You were lied to, whether intentionally or otherwise, if someone told you that that verse was talking about money. It's not. Not at all, not even in the least. It's entirely in the context of what we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 6. He says, it will be given to you. What is that? Pardoning. Pardoning will be given to you. And look, in its context, look what Jesus was saying. When you go to your knees and you say, Father, I want to be forgiven for what I've done. If you've been willing to do that for other people consistently, if you have a genuinely merciful heart for others, what God will give you will be poured into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Do you want that kind of forgiveness from God in your life for the things you've done so that you don't have to suffer under the weight of the consequences that have come? Well, then do it for other people and you open the door for Him to do it for you as you ask. All right, This is not a name it, claim it, prosperity thing. We're talking about the forgiveness opportunity God is willing to give. And friends, there is limitless forgiveness. He's not promising you limitless money, but He's promising you limitless forgiveness. That's the kind of God we serve. Isn't that an amazing thing to know? Am I right in saying most of us hold ourselves more accountable than God is willing to if we would just seek His forgiveness? And by that I mean we're harder on ourselves than even He might be if we would just seek it from Him? So let's make sure our prayer life includes some time to confess our sins. Wouldn't that make sense at this point? I mean, how many of you are going to run home tonight? And think only, because isn't it a wonderful thing to think? I've been suffering under these. I could have just gone to my knees and said, Lord, you're faithful and just to forgive me. I'm confessing. Now, remember the key element, though, and that is sincere repentance. You know, if you're planning to do the same thing again tomorrow, I might not spend any time tonight confessing it, hoping for relief. I think that might not help you. I would much rather see you deal with that issue so that when you confess it, you put it away and then watch the Lord work. Now, at this point, I need to state the obvious. And I hope you know what I'm about to say. It's better not to sin than to seek forgiveness after the fact. Samuel says it this way. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Better to obey than sacrifice, right? Better to obey than to ask for forgiveness, or as we would say. That leads us to where we go lastly tonight, to the next step in our, our teaching tonight. That Concerning the third example, I know it's a bit of a, an abrupt juncture here, but let me tell you, these things are closely connected, and you'll see why. Because if it's better that we obey in the first place than seek forgiveness for our mistakes, then what we need are ways in our life that help us walk the straight and narrow and avoid listening to the flesh, listening to its temptations, right? That would take us away from the problem, out of the need to seek forgiveness. And the third example that Jesus uses in this chapter of fasting is one such method to discipline our flesh. Let's just read the verses. There's only three verses briefly that he covers for the third example. Verse 16, he says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. 
but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The basic outline of what he says here is the same as what we've seen already with the first two examples, so I think that helps us cover this one a little more quickly. And by that I mean he starts by showing you the hypocritical way to conduct this kind of discipline. And he uses, he didn't mention Pharisees at all in this, in this chapter for the most part, but we know he's talking about them because later in the same Gospel of Matthew, he makes the same statements again and he names them. So we know he's thinking about Pharisees. And Pharisees typically practiced fasting uh, several times every week. It was a regular part of their weekly routine. And when they did this, and remember from our earlier lessons on fasting when Jesus went into the wilderness, a fast in the Bible means either no food and no water, or it means only water. But it doesn't mean like no chocolate on Tuesday nights or something like that, okay? Only juices that come with, you know, bananas. No, it's literally no intake of anything or only of water. And the distinction between the two is one you would do for seven days, that's nothing of anything, and the other you would do for 40 days, that's only water. And if you think that's not humanly possible, it is. People do it. Back to the text, Jesus says, when you're engaged in a fast... You're going to feel faint, and you're going to look weak. It's not easy to look normal when you're in those circumstances. The Pharisees would take it to the extreme, though. They wanted attention and approval for this piety, so they made a point of looking discomforted. It's like what a four-year-old does when they're trying to show you that they're hungry. They kind of did this. They did it in sort of an adult way, I guess. Jesus says they put on a gloomy face. Oh, Rabbi Solomon, how are you doing today? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just really weak today. Ah, You know? Oh, are you fasting? Oh, yeah, I'm just, yeah. Oh, amazing. Fasting again. I can't believe you're fasting again. You're so good at that. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. Don't. All that fake humility, right? That's what they did. He says they neglected their appearance. You know, they didn't comb their hair. I mean, they went out of their way to look bad. Some of you think I must be fasting, but I'm not, all right? Um, This is hypocritical, and here's the hypocrisy, because the point of all of that exercise was to impress people, obviously, not to impress God. And so Jesus said, your reward is going to be limited to other people's approval. Hope you enjoy it. Now, the question we should ask at this point, briefly, is why do we fast? Why does anyone fast? Jesus says, just as you pray and as you give, you ought to fast in secret. That's the right way to do it. And you do it for the praises of God. Don't let it show. Just go about your normal routine. God in heaven knows you're doing it. You'll get your reward. But in my experience, many Christians today, very few, frankly, practice fasting on any kind of routine basis. And I will add, the New Testament does not require it. Jesus' words here are not a command to fast. So there's no specific command in the New Testament that says believers, Christians, should fast. But I think, and I think the Bible makes clear, it should be a part of your spiritual journey. It's a valuable thing. And I think perhaps the reason it's fallen out of practice is because we lack an appreciation for what it accomplishes spiritually. People don't get it anymore. The principal purpose in fasting is to deny your body nourishment so as to gain practical experience in disciplining the flesh's desires. The Bible says sin dwells in your body, in your flesh, not in your spirit. Now that you're a believer, it's only in your body. And that that sinful flesh, which we don't think of as an independent force, we think of it as us. But spiritually, it's not you. Because when it's gone, you continue. So we tend to think of ourselves as an integrated whole. If we don't, people start diagnosing us and giving us medication, right? But biblically speaking, you're not one, you're two. And only one of you is you. The other thing is your enemy. And it has a mind of its own, literally. And it imposes its will on you consistently. 
And if you're going to walk according to the Spirit and not according to your flesh, you have to learn how to resist your flesh's desires. That's an inevitable requirement. Resisting your flesh requires strength, spiritually speaking. And so like any muscle, you develop that strength by repetition. So you practice things that you can use to discipline your flesh, learn how to resist its desires, and as you do that, you become better at attending to the Spirit and putting the flesh's desires down. So what fasting does is it gives you a safe way to do that, a safe environment in which to do that. Your spirit has to resist, while you're fasting, your spirit has to resist your flesh's desire to eat. Again, you don't think of it this way. You say to yourself, I'm really hungry. Well, yeah, but really it's your flesh that's hungry. Your spirit doesn't need the food. But, but I feel it, all right? Well, that struggle that you feel throughout that day or however long you fast, that's your opportunity to learn how to battle the flesh and win. And we think of it as a safe way to do it because, let's be honest, friends, when you fail, as you might do from time to time, and you give in, well, there's no harm in eating. You know, it didn't, you didn't sin because you ate. And yet you learned something, didn't you? You learned, man, this is harder than I thought. I mean, because you told yourself, I'm not going to eat today. Two hours later, you see a donut walk by you in the, in, the, in, the, in the office, and you're ready to throw the whole fast out, aren't you? You're like, that was a bad idea anyway. What changed? You see how fleeting our desire to do the right thing can be because our flesh just takes hold? That's the problem. All right? So by fasting, you gain this benefit. You gain control over your flesh. And like any training circumstance, if the training is done properly, the learning transfers. I was in the Air Force for nine years, and, and I was at the military academy before that, Air Force Academy. And the things they trained you on there were like, you, you know, you, you shot at targets, and you stabbed dummies, and you, you know, they did things that were like being in war, but not being in war, so that if I actually stabbed the wrong place, I didn't kill somebody, right? But in war, if it were ever the case I needed to do those things, hopefully my training would come back to mind, and I'd have some understanding of what I'm supposed to do, right? It's this basic idea of what we do when we train. Well... I'll tell you from experience, if you learn how to discipline your flesh in something as simple as eating, and it's not simple, it's hard, but it's, it's easy to understand, then when the other lusts of the flesh come along and want to tempt you in other ways, you have a fighting chance. You've, you've developed some strength in those moments that you can transfer. Now, if you find fasting to be impossible, I will bet you have some other things I don't know about. Because I've never seen anybody who was an expert at withstanding all other lusts of life, but they just, I eat everything. I can't stop myself eating. Those two things are incongruent. All right? So I, it's my experience that they kind of move in the same direction together to varying degrees. And that when you can get a hold of lusts in one area of your life, you tend to be much stronger at doing it in others too. So fasting is a, is a direct way the Scriptures give us. That's one benefit. As I've studied on this, I'm not going to do any more on this tonight, but as I've studied on this, I have come to find seven total reasons in Scripture for what fasting can do in spiritual terms for us. And if you're interested in all seven, I would just direct you to the Verse by Verse Ministry website. We have a, a Bible question there. You just search fasting and you'll read the whole article and you can learn the rest. It's, it's beyond what we need to cover tonight to get into that. So what have we learned tonight? Well, first... Pray to seek forgiveness from the Father. That is, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, by that faith you have already received eternal forgiveness. That's been settled on the cross. Christ paid the debt for your sin once for all. Nothing more is required. You have a free gift of eternal life by your faith alone. On the other hand, if you've done that and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then what we learned is you should also continue to seek forgiveness for the earthly, temporal consequences 
for the sins that we commit. And if we do that, our Father in heaven is merciful and loving and just and prepared to preserve you to some degree from those consequences. And he asks you to repent so that he may offer you that grace. And finally, if you're struggling to walk in the Spirit, if your need to confess forgiveness is like this long, because there's so much in your life that's, that's not going where it should, then let me encourage you to strengthen your spiritual resolve. And one of the ways you can do that is in fasting, is in practicing how to gain control over what the flesh wants, learning from that practice and applying it in other areas. And as we do all these things, as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we put these things into practice, as we work to discipline our flesh, and as we seek forgiveness from those moments we fall short, What's going to come in time is the spiritual maturity that results in the maximization of your eternal reward. That in the moment you stand before Christ on the judgment day that we know is coming, that the Bible tells us is coming, we'll hear what we're waiting to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the pleasure and the joy of your master. That's what we're waiting for. We'll all hear that. The question is, to what degree will our Lord be pleased? I'd like to bring you up to the top in that respect, up to the maximize potential that you have. And that comes by obedience. And obedience comes from knowledge and knowledge from study. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're going to keep doing this. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for for reminding us about important matters tonight, first and foremost, of your grace and your mercy for us, how endless it is, how freely it is offered, and how little we deserve it. But because you freely offer it, Father, and ask us to seek it, I ask, Lord, that you would give each of us a heart of repentance for those things in our life that we have yet to deal with. And that as we deal with them, Father, you would be faithful and just to forgive us. And as you forgive us, Father, direct us into all righteousness, cleansing us from all unrighteousness, so that we won't be back on our knees the next day with the same prayer. Thank you, Father, for a church that preaches these things. Help us to help each other obey. In Jesus' name, amen.